When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. We're recording on February 26, 2018. We talk about... 2018? 2018. Okay, oh, that. No, I'm keeping it. Throw it in. 2018, 2021. Oh, wow, Jeff. You know, what it was is I was looking at my... Um, my timer for the for the uh, recording. So and I just, it just I said the word for me. I want to. I now clearly I know it's twenty nineteen. Like, I know it's twenty nineteen, Rebecca. I know like, it's not. What happened on February twenty sixth of twenty eighteen? Do we even want to go back there? I think I've told you the story before, but I'll get it done on tape here right now. About I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. Just so you know, who's talking about you about weird stuff? Um, <laughs> when my first child was born, our first child, Michelle, and my first child was born in March. You know, the first six weeks or so after you have a baby, maybe the next 10 years, it remains to be seen when you come out of it. But especially the first, we have a baby, no one's sleeping, there's crying, we've got breastfeed, we're doing all that, we're trying and all the stuff that goes on with that. You're out of time, you know, you're like existentially jet lagged, essentially, all the whole time <laughs> away around it. And so some, the, the UPS driver rings the doorbell uh, and uh, uh, I say, I get the package, this is in early April, and I go... And I said, thank you. Happy New Year. (laughs) (laughs) There's an entire Curb Your Enthusiasm episode dedicated to like how late is too late for Happy New Year. And I'm pretty sure. I think we'd all agree that April's too late though. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Once you're past the vernal equinox, you got to stop with the New Year greetings. It's technically spring. (laughs) You're still Happy New Yearing. Yeah. Yeah. If you're closer Uh, to tax day than St. Patrick's Day, you're really in trouble. (laughs) Um, in that regard. So happy 2018, everybody with the midterms come up. We're really trying to take the house back. Oh, no. Um, you know, buy stock in Clorox. And maybe GameStop. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. What was the price in 2018? Oh, okay. Here we go. Hold on. Okay. So... <laughs> Rebecca, it's Friday. I'm just doing uh-huh. this now. Okay. I great. was telling Rebecca before the show about this text I got at 9 a.m. this morning from a San Francisco area code that just a Jeff question mark, right? Oh, we're and doing I, this on air. Okay. Yes, why not? I'm feeling froggy. It's okay. The sun is shining. It's 2018. Nothing. I've been I've been traveling all year. I've been out, yeah. you know, doing stuff. I was at the movies uh. yesterday. I had uh, so much less gray hair. I was watching Avengers Infinity War just yesterday. Uh, anyway, and so we were, we were going through the whole sort of like paradigmatic morals and ethics of text messaging, right? Like the weird sort of state it lives in. Someone texted me, Jeff, question mark from a text message I didn't know at all, right? And we were talking, and I said, yes, question mark. And then in parentheses, I don't know who this is for what it's worth, just to establish that I also don't know who it is. And we were talking about what could this possibly like who is this like someone that's a friend wouldn't just say jeff question mark they would say jeff i'm this person or you know whatever so it's a marketing text that they somehow they're mm. phishing me by using my first name and exploiting 
my desire not to leave a friend I haven't spoken to in six years who may or may not know this is my contact information on the hook. And I'm very mad about this. I'm mad about that too. Don't buy, um, this looks like uh, Florida real estate. Well, if you didn't know that, I can't help you. Um, So anyway... (laughs) Yeah, you can block it, but that is Are we recording? Is this the show? Enough. Is it should we, we I should mean, end, we're right? feeling you, show froggy. notes it's 2018. <laughs> My phone number will be in the show notes. No, that's not right. I'm not doing that. Not at all. Absolutely. If not. we did do that though, what would we? Hmm. Send Jeff your favorite bo- fact that anyone else would think is boring. <laughs> Listen. I'm like I'm like confessing to a priest all absolution for boringness over here nothing but you don't even have to say hail mary's you know uh anyway uh i feel like i shouldn't do a sponsor because this isn't anything this is nothing larry david would throw this out you know, this anyway. is experimental that's what we're doing here yeah we're just riffing here it's like lenny bruce at the, the village vanguard um back in whenever that was Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increased increasingly more sus when he and Shue barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. As you can tell... We have a very stacked show of important things to talk about. I want to do a little listener feedback. And, and again, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm so sorry if this person who, they emailed us about the velocity of holds on four, mm. four wins last time. Yes. And you and I were wondering, how does it compare to crawdads? Turns out this person said, let me go back and look. <gasps> a data dive. <laughs> so they went back. 
Well, in 2018, Crawdads hasn't happened. It's just getting started, I guess. So right right now, you may have heard of this little book called Where the Crawdads Sing. But no, they said it was a slow pickup. Three, we we okay. needed three copies, then three more, then three more, then three, three, three more. Which I guess I would be surprised if it was anything other than that, yeah. as we speculated last time, because it didn't fly out of the gate like this. Um, I haven't looked at the sales. for. I'm looking around like I have a physical copy to look at of Publishers Weekly. Um, I haven't seen what the second week sales mm. are for Four Winds. I'll be very curious to see. But as we said last time, almost impossible for it to go up. I think it's a pent-up demand. It's a brand name. I think the book is okay from what I've seen for, from people who like Kristen Hanna. Um, Rebecca, you got a very nice letter of thanks from someone saying, thank you for spoiling Firefly Lane enough so that I don't have to read the book that's, that someone gave to me two years ago and is just sitting <laughs> on my shelf wondering if I should read it. You are welcome. I am here to spoil surprise cancer and surprise husbands dying. <laughs> we joke about a show like this a lot where it's just a podcast feed that's sort of, it's just like, should I read it? And it's like 20 minutes per episode where we're talking, and it's, maybe it's not just you and I, but it's like some book ride people or friends mm-hmm. or like you know, friends of the show inside people we know, like books that are out there in the ether and just like level with people. Do you, is this something you should read that you would enjoy or like what's the virtue of it? Or is it like, yeah, you can sort of ignore that. There are so many books and so many get talked about, especially if you are interested in them. And then we have the second layer of all the adaptations, right? People want to know. Yeah. I also watched the adaptation. Should I read the thing? Should I read Queen's Gambit, for example? I, that was one I wanted to know. Someone who's read Queen's Gambit, tell me if I liked and re- if I liked the show and watched it, would I do you think I would like Queen's Gambit? We sort of do that with reading movies, but it's like it's not even a question in there that you're going to read it. It's just sort of what's different. This mm-hmm. is very specific. Like, would I like this book for whatever reason? Because I might have this question out there. Do you like that show? Are we doing yeah. one of these episodes where I throw stuff at you and make you I react mean, in real time and try to we, also mollify me, but also patronize <laughs> me at the same time? Is that what we're doing how, now? How shiny am I going to look at the end of yeah, this? Is right. really yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You notice we're not doing any games anymore. That's off, that's oh, are we just, we're just done with games forever now? <laughs> I mean, forever is a long time. <laughs> Yeah, I think we've done a little of that, like in the big book discussions or like the yeah. big book clubby ones. There is a like, should you bother? We really got to commit thing. to that. Like that's a, anyway. Yeah, you're right. yes, we do I that. could totally get behind doing something. I would be interested in doing something with. I want to listen to the show. Episodes. I'm finding. Yeah, like, I want to listen to that too, and yeah, I would. To too. And I would read a. Actually, you know, I think. I do read like some newsletters that do this about like what's on streaming right now. Like, right. is this a, yeah. like this is a mess? But is it an interesting one, or should you skip it all together? And mm-hmm. yeah, I think should you right bother? Now, if we were like, if there was like one or two episodes a week, I'm now just doing programming notes. This is behind sure. the scenes. We're now thinking about it. <laughs> you can tell we want to talk about all the news we have on our docket, um, because like every week there's probably two, at least two books that aren't just interesting books for us or people to recommend, but like they're out there for people that would read a book that they want to know. <laughs> I think this yeah. week it probably is The Four Winds, right? Or last week. It probably, that's the book probably. people are probably wondering about right now. Um, and for some of the books that you've heard us talk about over time, I know people expect us or expect us too strong, but they look forward or would like us to talk about, you know, if there's a new Colson Whitehead book, Right. We mm-hmm. both will read that, but we don't do it at the same time. It might take. I read the Nickel Boys, Nickel Boys earlier than you did, but like, if we had another like format, and maybe we could make it a part of this show and see what it said, because mm-hmm. there are books coming out that both you and I will read. It's yeah. just a matter of time. And I don't know. Is that something? I don't email us podcast I, at bookriot.com. Well, tell, yeah, tell us. Yeah, I, I want to. 
I do want to know what listeners think about this because we do this with each other offline all already, the time. All the where time. it is, there is the stuff that's in the shared wheelhouse, and yeah. who, whichever one of us hasn't read it will ping the other one and be like, "You read this thing already, right?" Like, right, should, right. Yeah, yeah, should yeah, I yeah. bother or alternately? Like in the last month or so, I don't remember what it was, but there was something where I remember knowing a thing was on your radar and texting you and being like, don't bother. Yes. <laughs> you know, like, you That's don't helpful this. and no shade in the Everglades about the book itself. Like this is like a reader service thing. Like I'm not trying to say that this course is, this shouldn't be a thing. Like it's actually, I guess reader's advisory is a term of art that librarians mm-hmm. use, but like, do you need to bother or well, you not wanna, do you, you want to maximize like, here's, your book minutes right. in life sponsored by and... TBR. The whole thing could be sponsored by TBR. <laughs> I mean, I don't hate they that. They should pay us something. Who are those people over there? They're rolling <laughs> cash, aren't they? they right. be well, up. I mean, if they are, I would, I'd sure like to know about Who it. Who is they is where's the cash? And <laughs> I thought they worked for us. Yeah, because I think, well, maybe we'll try this for the next few weeks where we don't actually do it. But if we had this show, what would be mm-hmm. the two episodes this week? And we'll see if it's interesting, kind of as a, as a pilot program. And you can email us if, yeah. you, if you have candidates and- for it. Like the one we're doing offline this week is Think Again by Adam Grant, yes. where I'm just repeatedly like, hey, you this you should bother with this. Here's today's fact. You should fact. clearly bother with this. And again, I don't want to, because an hour long discussion, like I love the It book discussions. There's going to be more coming up. Speaking of, uh, I just, uh, I got the notification that my copy of Claire and the Sun is shipping mm. and will be here release days Tuesday. So we're, that one's coming up. Readers, you know, service if you want to be ready to, re- to to listen to us talk about it with we spoil it and do all the thing. But an hour of one book that you may or may not be interested in, would, would, would Claire in the Sun rise to the level of, should we read it? I think probably Nobel Prize winner in yeah, that, speaks, yeah. that, that, that writes in English natively. That's a big deal in America. Um, it should be a bigger deal for other languages too, but that's... And then when there's a big movie coming out or an adaptation, say, what's... Well... I guess we can get into the, the the Underground Railroad teaser dropped. Did you watch it? I watched the first 10 seconds. I was like, okay, I got to get through my day before I do this. <laughs> I, I did. It remain. It's it's only a little bit more satisfying than the first teaser trailer. <laughs> Black people work in the rails is what it looks like still, just like railroad workers. Is it, that what it, it looks has, like still? I mean, man, I love Barry Jenkins's particular flavor of stylizing the yeah. the way that things look and it really comes across on that so yes it was it was enchanting but there's no like you still get no real sense of what's going to happen yeah. in this story if you like if you had not read the underground railroad and you were watching this trailer it's like okay you now i see that they have a, a literal railroad and it's not just metaphorical there is one like very arresting image of a woman i think climbing down a rope ladder like yeah. presumably into something very deep um but there's no there's no plot giveaway in the trailer yeah. is what i'm trying to say but it, i mean it's beautiful it i'm of course going to watch the crap out of it be- i mean yeah absolutely going to watch <laughs> i i just read the little blurb and Barry Jenkins may have said this earlier but i i saw it quoted again in the trailer show notes slash listen if you want to see the trailer that this is a story about Cora, not about slavery. This is a Cora story, a character story that is mm. set during slavery, and that he said often, most often the time, when stories about black people about set in this time, in this location, in these systemic structures, dehumanize the actual people that were subject to it, right? Because right. of all the reasons it was built to do in history, and somehow it's easier to, th- to have, watch a book about or watch, watch a, that's a Freudian slip, uh, yeah. to read a book or watch a movie about slavery and sort of 
yeah, get some distance from it by saying not being not too invested in the people. I think that's one of the things Beloved was trying mm-hmm. to do is like really get real down close to the actual people's discovery. And I can see in this sort of a situation, it would be easy. It would be easy to make it about the metaphor, right? Like this is an mm-hmm. allegory, and so the humans themselves don't actually matter. We need to get on the SEO. I just realized. Was the Underground Railroad actually a train? Because people don't know, and this is going to be confusing. No, I'm serious, Rebecca. People think there's actual railroad, I think. Don't you think? I think think enough of them do that we could get some traffic off of people Googling it, yes. When I used to work at KU Info and people would ask me, are squirrels rabbits? I know that there are people out there, and they're they're not bad people. Right. They were miseducated. We don't talk enough about slavery. It's a, yeah. you know, Bert Our Rowan, my, my daughter who is seven, they're doing some, you know, much more in-depth black history than I ever did. Talked about the Underground Railroad. And Michelle said, what do you understand the Underground Railroad to me? And she was like, it was a it was an organization of um, homes and businesses and people who are willing to put their lives on the line oh. to help say. And she was like, it was like amazing. And that's wonderful. I, I thought she was going to be wondering about the railroad. No, she taught me about the whole system, more things that I know. But I know there are people who are going to be like, so was there actually an underground railroad? Yeah. We need sort of a no, there wasn't an actual train. Here's what it is. Because there's no room in the book to say what the thing it's metaphorizing is, right? I don't remember them ever being like. Well, yeah, the book yeah. doesn't work if you don't know that what he's doing is surrealism by yeah, making right. a metaphor look literal. Yeah. Right. Because there are probably going to be people who burn through that thing and said, wow, I didn't know there were these underground trains. Gosh, we were better at engineering than yeah, I thought. Yeah, we were. And- <laughs> Elon Musk Born Company was behind the, behind the times you know, there. I think that's such an important point just to jump back up to what Barry Jenkins was talking about, about grounding it in a personal story. And I think that's one of the really critical things that's happening in like in this moment in storytelling, both in books and TV, as the stories that we're telling are not just more diverse, but they're coming from voices inside those communities and, and those cultures. And so it, of course it's grounded in personal detail and not just conceptual observation from outside and it's one of the things that that also made i loved reading the good lord bird by james mcbride but watching Mm -hmm. it that is one of the things that made it a really powerful thing to watch because it is so grounded in the people's stories and watching depictions of like people fighting it literally fighting it out over the existence of slavery and all of the racial mm-hmm. stuff that's tangled up in that when you can't separate yourself from the emotions of the people on screen that that's the push it's a really powerful push and a really powerful emotional experience that does exactly what i think we want art to do right to to move us into thinking about those things um, yeah so what you should learn here is the underground railroad <laughs> is not an actual train. Maybe you could ride a train as a part of your experience of the Underground Railroad. I don't actually know that much about, you know, the, you know, what what you would have needed to, and it varies from where you're coming from and different mm-hmm. places and who's involved. So it's, it's not one thing. Um, but that's something we need to clear up. Also, <laughs> do read Underground Railroad. Should yes. you read it? Yes. That's the answer to the question right. one. Um, you know, like, here's one I'd like to know. The trailer also came out today, teaser trailer for Shadow and Bone which is going to be on Netflix, which is like the next big hype beast of a thing that's coming um, uh, to Netflix. And it's based on a very successful and and it's well-liked. Is it beloved? I don't know. I don't feel like it's quite moved to beloved, but maybe this will move it over the the line to beloved. 
um, series of y- YA fantasy. I don't know anything about it. I've been meaning to read it, meaning, wanting, interested in reading it for a long time. That's coming out in April. That's clearly a should I read it situation. After you, mm-hmm. after you binge or um, uh, sit down and do all, I'm trying to not to say that marathon. one. Marathon. 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 To- thank you. If you're trying to, if you marathon the episodes and you're done, there's going to be a lot of people wondering because there's a series and I'm, I'm guessing this is only the first book. Should I read Shadow and Bone? And this would be a nice service for us to do. Yeah. She's a, she's I'm into email. it. Rabbits are not uh, squirrels. Rabbits are not squirrels. I've told you all <laughs> Have I stories. told you have my penguin version of that question? Penguins Maybe are also not. not squirrels. They're not. They're not squirrels. Um, no. Bob loves penguins. And a, a thing that. that we have. Yeah, you do know that. A thing we've done on a few vacations when we were in cities with great aquariums is like you can go and do a behind the scenes penguin situation. Meet the penguins. The New Orleans Aquarium, if you happen to be near there and they're doing mm-hmm. it in a time you can leave the house again is really wonderful. Um, but we were on one of these tours one time with another a woman who was about our age. We hear her turn to the guide and go, so are penguins birds or fish? I mean, look, <laughs> it is a weird bird, but would be even a weirder <laughs> fish. Like God bless the the guide who had clearly heard this question before and was prepared with the answers of like, well, fish have gills and birds have wings and feathers and these creatures have wings and feathers. They yeah. are just able to swim and penguins are birds. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, that's what I learned. So for those of you who are listening for the, that don't know me intimately and know everything I've ever done, I mean, shame, too bad for you, but I used to have this gig. Um, one of... I like this job better now. I say that not too reluctantly, but I'm confessing I like my job better now, the pay alone. But anyway, <laughs> when I was in college, I worked this job. It was called KU Info. I went to the University of Kansas. And it was before we had Google at all. And you could just call, and we would try to answer your question. We had a big bank of books on the shelf. We had this Rolodex we kept with every question we've ever been asked so that you could look it up, and it was multiply um, organized by subject and different word, keywords and things like that. Because mm-hmm. it started out in 1970, so there weren't even databases you could use. Eventually, we moved into a database system on FileMaker Pro and the Mac Classic, which I programmed our database <laughs> that I didn't know what I was doing, but I did. I anyway. love that you remember that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Spent a lot of time in it. So you could just call. It was meant, it, it grew out of, there was some um, riots is too strong, but there was unrest at the university, and people were, the rumors were flying all over the place. Someone was died, someone shot, like, and they needed a central place people could call and get the straight information about what was actually happening. And that grew out of, you could ask us anything. So we kind of became like the New York Public Library reference desk was in its heyday, and we would try to answer. And we we would even do stuff that seems impo- and seems wild to say now. It's like, you could call us, and we had, a, we had a rule that if we could answer it in five minutes, we would just put you on hold. But if we had, to, it would take longer, but we thought we could answer it, you'd call us back tomorrow, and we'd have your answer ready. And this was all free, by the way. This is just a completely free service paid for by the university. I've lost my train of thought here. Rebecca, what was, where was I going I, we were with this? Said we, I, we were at squirrels and rabbits, and the answer is Squirrels and no. rabbits. I don't know where I got. What, I'm just like, telling just the no. story now. Oh, <laughs> yes. The thing I've, and this has served me in good stead as a parent, as a manager, as an employee, as a human in the world, sometimes just answer what's asked. <laughs> so if they say, are birds fish? You say no, because you don't know what the next question is going to be. Hmm. Right? Could have been a lawyer. They don't know Jeff that O'Neill. much about. They don't know that much about fish or birds. Clearly, you don't know where is the information <laughs> gap here. 
<laughs> have you ever been underground or seen a railroad? Have you ever been underground and seen a railroad? Let's start there. Do you know what time it is? Yes. To quote the last one. So sometimes you just say, yes. So one time I got this question, my favorite one ever, someone calls up. And it was a great safe space because you didn't have the internet where you could go wiki and shame of like, I didn't know the thing that exists. Now you can all do this. And, and frankly, <laughs> wiki the internet, and shame is a great show title. <laughs> show title. Uh, the internet helps you this. There's, there's a place you could go and find things that you didn't want other people to know that you needed to go find. Some of this is perfidious and gross, but some of it's very helpful. Welcome to the internet. Um, and one person called up and said, so Islam. And I said, Yes. That was my response. And they said, is that like a city or something? And I said, <laughs> no. <laughs> and they said, very, they were very frustrated at this point, not with me, just for their, so what is it then? And I said, it's one of the world's great religions. And they're like, oh, that makes so much more sense and hung up. <laughs> I think about that person at least once a month. I don't think I've heard that KU info story, and yeah, I've heard most or, of them. Or you're, or, you're, or you're magnanimous enough to pretend that you have it. I have I not heard that, that one. I would, I would remember. Yeah, so a gold mine. I'm gonna, gold I'm gonna try this. It, there's a similar thing. There's an episode of a um, web series called Garfunkel and Oats, where mm. the women are. It grows out of this joke. They're dating, and they're like, "How long can I go on a first date?" without saying anything like how long will a man just talk before they realize you haven't said anything and they start calling it your 10th anniversary your 10th wedding anniversary (laughs) is the over under yeah they call this technique little mermaiding since the little mermaid (laughs) did not have a voice and i i watched it with bob and i watched the series together several years ago and he's sneaky so he didn't deploy it immediately he waited like a month and then one day you like a relationship bear trap See yeah. if he wanders into it one day. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he did one day. I'm like cooking dinner. I'm telling him all about the things that happened in my day. And at some point it dawns on me that he's been completely silent. <laughs> like, are you little mermaiding me right now? And he's like flopping around <laughs> wearing like, a mermaid outfit. <laughs> Look, I mean, there's a mermaid outfit in this house. But that's to my true. knowledge, Bob has not put I it on. I think we are getting into a TMI situation too much Two mermaid intimate. That's what TMI. It was for Halloween. Sure. You know, multi-purpose thing is okay. Uh, Let's do a sponsor. It's Friday in here. All right. Uh, I don't know how long we've gone. I don't know what time it is. You going to try to put this train back on the tracks? Bookstore sales. Seems like a preposterous notion right now, I have yeah, to tell right. you. It's hard to segue out of there are mermaid costumes in my house. Um, <laughs> bookstore sales fell 28.3% in 2020. Rebecca Shinsky, is that good or bad, and how would we know? It doesn't sound great. But <sighs> pandemic. Mm, if you were pandemic. told 28.3% on March 11th, which is... Tom Hanks, Rudy Gobert Day, which I think is now, it was my birthday, so I don't want to make this about me, but it is, was the day the NBA shut down, Tom Hanks said he had COVID, and then that next Monday, school systems around the country started shutting down and people mm-hmm. stopped going into work. So like, a, if you were told on March 16th, 
what's your over under for the percentage of bookstore sales would fall in 2020? I would have signed if I were a bookstore owner for 28% at that point, I think, in hindsight. Yeah. But I don't know. I think how we you know, were in March was really scary. Mm-hmm. And there's you know details in this Publishers Weekly piece. This is by Jim Milliot, um, where he notes that in March of last year, sales fell 33.2%, and that was as lockdowns kicked in. And then they went down 74.2% mm. in April, while stay-home orders took hold. They bounced back a little bit in May. And that was really as we were all getting our heads around the fact that we were going to be stuck at home for longer. And I think bookstores had started to adapt to shipping models or doing curbside pickup or Mm. whatever. Um, The declines eased as 2020 moved toward the end of the year. And some of that undoubtedly is the nature of retail and the holidays being concentrated Mm. at the end of the year. And some of it, I would guess, is... We were past the election. There was vaccine stuff either starting to happen or on the horizon. And COVID was, there was at least the feeling of hope that COVID was starting to to Mm -hmm. ease up. And there were, you know, restrictions were easing in places. Um, Yeah, it it doesn't sound great falling 28.3%. But when you consider that the floor it bounced up off of was dropping 74% in April, it's a pretty good recovery. Yeah, they can be down 20% only when you were mostly closed. <laughs> the, like, like if, as a function of the percentage decrease in the number of hours people could be in your store, it has to be more than 20%. Yeah. So well, that's I wonder, I don't know how these numbers are compiled. So does this loss, this decrease of 28.3% factor in? stores that were open at the start of 2020 but that were closed for for good by the end of 2020 like is it like you lost a hundred percent of some stores sales Mm. for some of the months i'm not sure how that all factors you know interesting does this even say where this data comes from preliminary estimates from the u.s census bureau the census bureau is tracking bookstore sales apparently that's the more interesting thing to me all of a sudden is like, why is the, the Census Bureau is tracking books? Does this include bookshop.org? It was my th- next mm. question. Um, Who else is they tracking did... bookstore sales that we would be surprised yeah, by? right? <laughs> Good Lord. Very interesting. Um, on the other hand, I don't think you have this in the, the show notes. On the other hand, trade sales were up mm. huge last year. So yeah. for 2020, I have it right here, blah, blah. Blah, blah. Oh, I lost it. Uh, well, Lagardere, which is Hachette's parent company, um, was up 4% year over year. And Simon & Schuster had its best sales year ever in 2020. So you can do the math and triangulate yep. that online booksellers did very, very, very well last year. Amazon will never tell us. Books, I mean, Bookshop did great. They, I mean, right place, right time, a solution that was needed at this particular moment. I'm not sure what to make of this, Rebecca. I, people have asked me a lot. Like, people have asked me, you know, as you do, and you, you talk to people that you haven't talked to in a while, or like, how's work, and how's your business? And everyone's like, you guys, did you, are you guys doing okay? You, you know, kind of lucky that you're in books. I'm like, yeah, I think so. Is publishing in a good spot? Can we say that publishing's in a good spot and bookstores aren't? Is this like the final decoupling of the fate of bookstores mm. and publishing? 
I guess, is maybe what I'm wondering. Do we need to talk about bookstores as a function of the health of publishing anymore, publishing sales? That's both a philosophical question. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And a practical one. Right. And my practical brain To take the last part first. Did you debate in high school? That's like a very debater thing. I'll take the last part first. Oh, I I didn't, but thank you. Yeah. the practical part of my brain says maybe we should really finalize decoupling these things because their direct impact on each other is not that significant Mm -hmm. anymore. The philosophical part of my brain is like, but do we value bookstores as cultural entities and parts of the community? And if that's true, then shouldn't the health of bookstores be a factor in the equation when we're determining how healthy are bookstores part of the publishing industry? Is a weird like it's mm-hmm. it's a little rhetorical, but it sort well, of isn't. Kind yeah, because we've we have made the distinction over time on this yeah. show about the difference between the health of reading culture mm-hmm. and the health of publishing, right. Right. and this feels like a similar possible distinction mm-hmm. that bookstores may be important to us and we might want to measure their health and care about it while also acknowledging that the health of bookstores at this point may be relatively uncorrelated to the health of publishing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, and, and I think you are, of course, right to say because bookstores aren't critical to publishing doesn't mean that bookstores aren't valuable or critical writ large. It just means they're crucial mm-hmm. and valuable in a different way. And maybe it could clarify some of our discourse around bookstores. Well, possibly. I, I have to I think we should also note it's highly unlikely that we will see this decoupling because publishing, so far at least, has continued. If the past is any indication of what's likely in the future, and maybe it's not, publishing insists for, in some reasons, like messaging purposes about how essential and important bookstores are. And it's like it can't be true numerically that independent bookstores are important to a publisher's bottom line. It just We know can't. for some titles, midlist literary fiction, you know, there there are some exceptions that prove the rule of mostly it doesn't sure. matter. Yeah. But philosophically, I think they're philosophically entangled mm-hmm. in a way that makes sense to me and that I support and that if maybe we zoomed up a layer and just started talking about like the health of like reading culture or the health of mm-hmm. you know book culture, we could talk about publishing and retail and bookstores specifically in a way that acknowledges the ways they touch each other and the ways that they don't, rather than just talking about all of them as like, well, you know, these things really do have competing interests in Mm -hmm. some meaningful ways and the discourse around them doesn't acknowledge those. Right, right, right. I guess there is a messaging thing that Big P Publishing does around independent bookstores that they may maybe they believe it philosophically even if it doesn't show up on their spreadsheets of doom at the end of the year or whatever about what matters into their bottom line but as consumers of the discourse around bookstores and publishing and amazon and everything bookshop.org i think there's some there's some useful clarity or a useful division around this if any this if anything says that publishing publishers can sell books mm-hmm. they can how can it be that bookstore sales fell 28 percent in 2020 and publishing writ large had its best revenue year ever right if you were ever, talk about a b testing the universe we talk about this all the time imagine this is a thought experiment 
for us, like th- in 2018, well, right now, actually, we're in 2018. Imagine a world in which we're going to get a world <laughs> in which we can see that publishers have their best year ever and bookstore sales were down 28%. What will that tell us? And we said, mm-hmm. are bookstores gone? Like, how will we have this discussion anymore? So I, I find it really interesting. I mean, I kind of was already in this place myself anyway. I, you know, I kind of felt like yeah. if all bookstores went away tomorrow, it may not matter to publishing it would matter to me personally. I right, think it would right. not be great, but books are going to sell still. And we saw. Yeah, it. I think that's the core truth of people who want to read books are going to find a way to get those yeah, books or right. they're going to take advantage of whatever the existing mechanism is mm-hmm. to get the books. Yeah. And you could do an opposite thought experiment. Like if, I don't know, if tomorrow it became illegal to sell books on the internet. Right what would happen to bookstore sales and would publishing still be okay? And I think exactly the same thing would happen. You you wouldn't be able to get the book you wanted from the internet. People would find a way to get it from a bookstore. If you want to read the thing, you're going to, yeah. you know. I think you wouldn't be inverted though, because there's more friction still in mostly buying from an independent bookstore. Yeah, store, maybe but, not a complete yeah. one-to-one relationship, but I don't think you see a collapse of the internet that doesn't correlate with an increase, right. a meaningful increase back in brick and mortar shopping. Well, to, to take your thought experiment one further or one to the side, um, if tomorrow there was a law saying no more books could be published, just there was, mm. there would still be bookstores. Oh, yeah. So you can decouple it the other way too, right? I mean, the people I would, would go, <laughs> go out the other way. This is a thing I would love to watch happen because there's so much backlist and it's rich and interesting and wonderful how publishers like publishers would still need to market to make different books sound exciting Mm -hmm. so that people so there was a fresh appetite for things but watching publishers like dig through their backlist and decide what to like put a new cover on and get some new blurbs for and make an ad campaign around when there was no Mm -hmm. time sensitive urgency for this is actually a new book would be How about this? Take take <laughs> take nut jobs like us out of the equation. Me and Lib and Jen Northington. Let's say the book stopped publishing. How long before America noticed that there were no new titles coming out? <laughs> so long. So long. You just recycle old James Patterson books at the grocery store. With different titles. With different backlist titles. They wouldn't know. <laughs> This is a DeLorean that only you and I ever want to take a ride. <laughs> right. If we get in our DeLorean, we go back three years to 2015. Oh, no. <laughs> we'd know a lot more. We'd do some things different. <laughs> do some things different. All right, let's do another sponsor and come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny. And as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. 
Ella assures her that she's fine. Partying hard is what it takes. But with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments. And We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes and Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023. So suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. I'm going off script. For the first time this episode, I'm sorry, I'm going to throw you a curveball. <laughs> Hello and welcome. <laughs> so we've long, we've long had our weather eye out for a big brand name publisher to strike it out on their own and say, you can only get Stephen King books now if through self-publishing. Mm-hmm. Stephen King, Jimmy Patterson... The list is short. Nora but Roberts. Nora. Yeah. Short but mighty, much like Rebecca Shinsky herself. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Small you. but mighty, I believe is the phrase. I'll take it. E.L. James, haven't talked about in a while, oh. is making an interesting move. First of all, did you know did you know that PRH owns forty five percent of source books? No. <laughs> well there you go. So that that's 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 a sub nugget one that I'm leading sub with. Sub nugget. <laughs> uh if this, is your, if this is your first episode of this podcast, we're sorry. It's all better from here. Um, E.L. James's backlist is now going to be distributed by source books in print and ebooks. And James is the quote unquote keystone author. This is from Publishers Marketplace. It's unsigned. I'm sorry. I can't give credit to the. It's just reporting. I mean, not just reporting, but like there's not analysis mm-hmm. right here. Publisher. Um, the Keystone author in a new imprint providing a joint publishing model to entrepreneurial women authors who want to benefit from all that a top publisher has to offer, including powerful retail relationships and deep distribution channels. I guess that's a quote from Sourcebooks. Okay. The company says the role, the role line will let established entrepreneurial authors to take greater control in the creation, development, and marketing of their books. Hmm. Is that the machine foreclosing big publishers self uh, big authors self-publishing are you yes. basically saying we're gonna give you you can rent our garage and you know work on your car in there and we'll help you out with it but we're not gonna you, it's, it's it's in between self-publishing and traditional publishing 
Yep. Somewhere. If you had just read that paragraph and said, what do you think they're trying to do here? I would have said they're trying to keep E.L. James from going back to self-publishing or they're trying to keep the next big author who thinks, man, I have a big enough audience. Why am I paying people to do yeah. these things or why am I giving away a percentage to this other stuff? They're trying to be like, well, here, here's a nice middle way right. where we can still make like the publishers don't want to lose E.L. James. Why wouldn't why would James you? Patterson? No. Right. Yeah. No, I mean. We cannot say enough times, especially the farther out we get from the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon, mm. like never in the history of PRH until then had everyone who worked there gotten a $5,000 bonus in a year because of one time. We're not going to forget and, that number till we like die, right? Because no, it was I'm so gonna, striking. Will, gonna, that $5,000 check to every employee at PRH was a thing. Because like, of Fifty Shades, right. Yeah, because of Fifty Shades of Grey. Like it's, that's so, so. $100 per shade they got. So, <laughs> that oh wow mm-hmm. <laughs> what if it was i'm glad it wasn't i mean i wish there was five thousand shades of gray but they were thinking it's like god down. Our, our shade our shade our shade mark our shade uh correlated bonuses what were we talking about i don't know what if yes. TMZ had shade correlated bonuses? Oh, wow. Yeah. They probably do. I wonder, yeah. what does an open book management structure look like at TMZ? Oh, now people really don't know what we're talking about. Uh, you were saying something about the bonuses. Like, that's yes. how big it, it was. A, it, right. was a, it was a Yucatan Palinza, Peninsula meteor earth shattering yes. once the, in a th- generational kind of thing. There's, there is compelling, I think, possible incentive for big established authors to explore self-publishing. And there is compelling reason for publishers to not want those authors to do that. And this looks like an interesting attempt at compromise there of we're going to give you some framework and structure and support and you get to play around a little bit more and have a little bit more control and be Mm -hmm. entrepreneurial. Yeah. Who decides who qualifies as an entrepreneurial author do you it's just get also to declare not just author, it's women entrepreneurial right. women Which I like. authors mm-hmm. who else is in that category i mean if jen sincero is not looking at her books about how you're a badass with money and wondering if she rachel could hollis this. oh yeah. the joanna Gaines. again i don't mm-hmm. know who they're mm-hmm. contract with reese herself that's interesting i mean one thing I think that's hard to remember about when epoch, there are things like there's epoch changing things afoot in the world of business and culture or whatever. I think people don't often, and I'm guilty of this too, don't often remember that the big established players have incentive to accommodate this change. They're not going to be like, well, I guess we're going to let the storm come and we're not going to do anything. And if, if the world of, if the storm of self publishing overtakes us, be that as it may, and we're going down with the ship, right? These big companies have changed, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not as fast in some areas as we would like in others. But this is a, this is a situation they, they look at the they look at E.L. James, her particular brand name, her particular readership, her particular sort of backlist relationship. And they say, OK, well, the choice is not between you, our way or the highway. And, you know, you have to do it self-published or bust, self-published or traditional published with all the terms that come along with it, there is a third or maybe mm-hmm. many other third ways coming yeah, here. Well, and, and this is a recognition of that. And E.L. James is a really interesting 
and maybe you know, I can't imagine it's accidental first choice for this because she started in self-publishing yeah. and then PRH, like she was already a sensation. Fifty Shades of Grey That's was right. already a big deal. And then PRH went and acquired it and, you know, took on distribution and, of course, was enab- helped enable the spread of the popularity of that book and then also benefited from it. And maybe one A-B test the universe we won't get to do is how many books would she have sold on her own if that deal had never happened? No one is better equipped to see the lighter fluid you can put on a book that traditional publishing can do than E.L. James. She saw it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. she saw, she had a thing cooking before, but the the platform and the publicity and maybe some of the, the cachet or even validation that people saw this is a book in bookstores and publishing is hard. I guess that people forget mm-hmm. that too. Public, people like print books even more than we thought, I think, or maybe wondered about when ebooks were a thing. And I think it's also, we can say true, that we have not had a self-publishing phenomenon that stayed only a self-published. That's true. We just haven't seen it. I think that is a surprise. If you would have told me when we started the pod or when we started Book Riot in 2011, we're coming up on 10 years in the fall, over the next 10 years, will there be a book that's self-published only that becomes a, a phenomenon? I would have said yes. Yeah, I would have I guessed yes. I would have taken that bet. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't. It just, it just hasn't. I mean, there are success stories, in, especially in the world of romance and some other things. Um, there, there have definitely been success stories that people got dollars in careers that they wouldn't have otherwise. But we look at the books that you know you might read at i mean we we're really talking about books you might read at a book club right those are the kind of books we're talking about yeah and you know None of them. i don't i don't think it's a good thing that we haven't seen that happen uh, yeah i'm not i don't think it's good or bad either yeah say more about that yeah i would say i'm not sure it's a bad thing i do think it's very illustrative of the powerful structures that exist in publishing that you could write a great book and self publish it and maybe even have it be a sales sensation. Mm -hmm. But the traditional media around books is so it still has very deep ties to book publishing and publicity. And so do the literary awards. So Mm -hmm. like the cultural cachet of being a known writer, especially if acclaim or critical praise is important to you. If you want access to that, you almost definitely have to make some kind of a deal with a big publisher. And I don't think that that should be true. um, But those gates are still kept. I mean, I guess it's inherently true to be a published author, you need to be published. And that's a capital P published, not a lowercase p is how people think about it, right? Like, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a tautological truth there that's that's hard to get around but like you know the Hugh Howies of the world I'm not on Twitter on the internet as much as I was but like every now and again there'll be a thing about publishing and look at the million dollars someone made or whatever which is a lot of money and people do very well and I'm so glad that they do but it's not Gone Girl money it's not yeah. Fifty Shades money. It's well, not Crawdad's right, the Martian, money. It's not the Martian. The Martian is an interesting case there yeah. too because it started as self-publishing and I think that Andy Weir had even done an audiobook of he it did. himself. Yep, he did. Yeah, right. But there would there have been a movie deal with Matt Damon starring if Andy Weir didn't come attached to Penguin Random House and an agent and somebody to manage rights mm-hmm. and do all of those kinds of things? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is maybe a future I could have 
envisioned sooner if I'd thought about it differently. It's like, of mm-hmm. course, publishing is not going to go quietly into that good night without figuring out if there's some other way to accommodate yeah. people that don't need all of the pieces <laughs> of publishing. You know- when you phrase it that way, it feels like, oh, of course, this is publishing and that it took publishing 10 years after self-publishing became a big thing right. to establish a model like this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so anyway, I mean, I thought it was interesting to see that, that happening there um, along the way. Um, but, 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 but I Also, this is a heads up. On CBS, uh, 60 Minutes on Sunday... There's a Colson Whitehead interview coming, apparently, too. Oh, so you can okay. see that. His, uh, Julie Bear is going to be joining him, which is, she's a, I mean, probably the reigning scepter holder for literary fiction agents. Wouldn't you say right yeah. now? Yes. I think taking if, it from Andrew Wiley at this point. Yeah, if you know the name of one literary yeah. fiction agent, That's it's right. Julie Bear's Julie Bear. name, yeah. Mm-hmm. Who is, they are a couple, which is fascinating. and so much She's not his admit, agent. <laughs> not his agent. Not or anymore, or ever, I don't yeah. know. Now we're really getting remember. into gossipy yeah. stuff. Or not gossipy, but it's like, you know, personal life stuff, which I'm not comfortable talking yeah. about with other people, except for my old jobs when I was, you know, a teenager. <laughs> um, but someone should write a novel based on them. Anyway, I would read that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Do not make it gross or anything. Make it classy and <laughs> Do interesting not make and it respectful. <laughs> you know, in the, like, top five rules of Jeff O'Neillness, just it don't gross. make it gross make is it gross. It's way it's really up good. there. Don't compliment me and don't make it gross. Uh, sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. At She wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now, he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, 
he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get into the agenda. I don't think we've talked about anything on the agenda. I haven't read this piece in the New York Times. I think this is a go look at it for me. Did you look yes. at the, There's a big piece about the PRH SNS merger. Um, I've been saving it for this weekend. I should have thought to read it before the podcast yeah, today, but no, I didn't. I, you want to give me a, is this a, should I read? Should I read, Rebecca, this piece in the New I York think Times? you should read. It's mostly, there's there are some interesting numbers about how big is PRH, how big is Simon & Schuster, how big will they be if mm-hmm. PRH is able to fully you know complete the deal of taking simon and schuster over should we be worried should we be not who's concerned there are some good quotes in here um where james daunt the new mm-hmm. ceo i think of prh i can't remember the official title is like i'm worried much more about amazon than i am or james daunt is barnes and noble, barnes and noble yes right? you yeah got and he's like I'm, I'm so much more worried about i'm talking so much more about amazon and what mm-hmm. might be going on over there than i am than i am about you know a bunch of big publishers merging the the best part or the most interesting thing to me is the last line of it where they're in, at, near the end of the piece are like speculating about like will this be allowed yeah. will it be antitrust there's a lot for regulators to try to untangle and there's a um, university of michigan professor who's quoted in here going like it's a good kind of lawyer to be because it's a big argument and in the end boy you cross your fingers because it's a judgment call <laughs> That's why they're called judges, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess. I guess so. It was just nice to be like, "All oh, right, this is to be reminded of. This yeah. is what these things come down to. There are laws, and you know, sometimes there are black and white, obvious ways that a thing falls. Mm-hmm. But this is not one of those that's going to be black and white. It is going to be wiggly and judgment cally, and that's going to make it really interesting and also possibly contentious. And there will be a lot of room for speculation and commentary. So. This is mostly uh, what could your speculation and commentary jump off of? Um, it's a starting point kind mm-hmm. of piece, but I think worth this is worth reading if you're a person who is interested enough in the future of publishing that you've listened to the, this far. I was going to say, if you're interested episode. in this, well, theoretically, what we talking about, <laughs> not what we're actually talking about. If you're interested in what's on the tin, not what's actually you're going to try to you know, spoon feed into your mouth on this particular product, you should go read this. In fact, go read this, stop listening now, and never listen to our show again. You'll be, you'll be covered. You'll be covered. All right, let's do, I don't know, what, a couple more. St- where do you want to go? Now we're into the Let Our Pleasure Be Our Guide, What Our Interest Be Our yeah. Guide. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to shout out yes. Charles Yu, um, a writer that, that we both love. He's a National Book Award winner, and he has established a new prize for young Taiwanese-American creative writers. Mm-hmm. You can learn more about it. It's in partnership with TaiwaneseAmerican.org. So you can go there, TaiwaneseAmerican.org, to find out more. It is the Betty L. Yu and Jen C. Yu Creative Writing prizes. And they are intended to encourage and recognize creative literary work by Taiwanese American high school and college students, and to foster discussion and community around that work. So if this Mm. describes you or someone who's doing creative work that's in your sphere of influence, and you would like to recommend them, uh, the submissions must be literary genre, including fiction, Oh, sorry, it can be any literary genre, including fiction, poetry, personal essays, or creative nonfiction. And submissions are open until March 31st. So cool. you have to be a writer of Taiwanese heritage or have a significant connection 
to Taiwan or have subject matter otherwise relevant to the Taiwanese or Taiwanese American experience. Mm -hmm. So again, high school and college students, there's more details available. You can see uh, who's judging the prizes and find out a little bit more about, you know, what you could win and what's at stake. But a really cool, like, I guess I'm not surprised at all that an author who it tends to just be as forward thinking and interesting and char as Charles Yu was like, this is a thing and I'm going to go make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really cool um, to see that. Uh, one other note, Hillary Clinton, Clinton is teaming yes. up with Louise Penny to write a novel. I guess she... It's hard to. Where'd she think she got the idea, Rebecca? Well, right? so she and Louise Penny are good friends. I know. Which I learned about listening to Hillary Clinton's podcast called mm -hmm. You and Me Both. Louise Penny was on a recent episode and they got to talking about it. And I would. I, Hillary Clinton has been a reader for her entire mm -hmm. life. And so I would bet that it was like, hey, Hillary, ever thought about writing something? So do sure, think, let's do, you do think it together. Bill stole it from her, or this is like, <laughs> oh, you can do this. I have many more matter. questions about how the Bill Clinton James Patterson partnership sprung up yeah, than I, I do about fair. this. This is like you're hanging out with your friend talking about how much fun it would be to work together. Yeah. And man, like, actually, we can go do that because I'm yeah. Louise Penny and you're Hillary Clinton. So why not? <laughs> All right. Now let's do this. We get, you get two picks. A <laughs> big time political, cultural, influencer person with an author of your choice teaming up together. Not a ghostwriting <laughs> situation. This isn't, this is their, it's a team up from the world of comics. Any thoughts <sighs> about where you're going? Oh, um, man. <laughs> well, the first two that came to mind for like big cultural commentator people were Roxane Gay and Ta-Nehisi Coates, and yep. they've both already done comics. I know, that's true. I true. Okay, let's um, Rebecca Solnit. That's a good one. Ooh, and maybe like a. Uh, who am I pairing her up with? <laughs> you, you, you you get a pol politician. <laughs> okay. Or non literary person celeb with an author, but it's not a ghostwriting. They're, they're they're it's the joint product of both of their ah, minds. Okay, Rebecca Solnit and AOC. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good you? one. Hmm. Not really sure. I was hoping you would take longer. <laughs> Let me keep making some uh, sounds about it. Bernie Sanders and Noam Chomsky. <laughs> no? That's a pairing. Or how about... Ooh, Stacey Abrams. Oh. And Stacey Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's already doing that. Yeah, Stacey yeah, Abrams yeah, yeah, yeah. needs no assistance. Right. Uh, I think like Stacey Abrams and Alyssa Cole could be mm. really interesting. How about Denzel and James McBride? Oh. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about Denzel Washington. I know he seems like an interesting... Is he a, is he a writer? Has he ever written? Is he interested in That's that? I don't know. That's a great but, like, question. I can see him starring in James McBride kind of stuff, but I don't know mm. if he'd be interested in writing. I don't know. I guess I don't know about any of outside of Hillary Clinton and some other people, you know, something that they're bookish kinds of people. I don't know if that's something there, but I'd, I'd like a pairing like that would be interesting. Too. I like that. 
Anybody else come to mind? This is a fun game. Mm-hmm. I want listeners to tell us yeah. their their pairings. I think that's a good idea. Very good idea. Um, I think... I mean, I love Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. But, like, who could she be paired up with that would be fun? Yeah, that would be fun. I can. It would be interesting, but it would be... Are we solving for fun? I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure Liz solves for fun. Well, I think much, Hillary Clinton okay. and Louise Penny and Clinton and Patterson, those are fun. Those aren't like you're getting a treatise on the state of American you know, <laughs> labor, like on my Chomsky-Sanders thing. They're not, li- they're not writing a, a lighthearted romp through Tuscany. Like That's not the book that Sanders and Chomsky are writing together. <laughs> How delightful would it be, though, if Elizabeth Warren and somebody wrote a lighthearted romp through Tuscany? <laughs> Or like an updated take on... Has Elizabeth Warren ever done anything lighthearted in her life? Like she and Sanders. I mean, you want the running stuff, but <laughs> like it like gets, are you going on a road trip with either one of those? It gets made into sure a movie that. and Stanley Tucci appears somewhere. There you go. Like, yeah, I like that one. I like that one uh, very much. Mm. Yeah, anyway, listeners tell we us. Needed, I, that was a little too interesting for us to be flip about it, I think. Yeah. We were like, we're taking yeah. that a little more seriously than intended. Cause it's an you asked the game. question and it was like, I immediately forgot every political figure I've ever heard of. I mean, it's really a self-defense mechanism, <laughs> to be honest with you. Can I say, though, as interesting pairings go, I have started listening to the new podcast that came out that's Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. Uh-huh. And I was skeptical. It's great so far. Don't you think that Barack Obama with someone you randomly pulled out of the phone book is a good (laughs) podcast? Well, Obama asks great questions. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was saying he asks great questions. He's a good conversationalist. And I I think for as much as, you know, being the president put him in the spotlight, I think he's a guy who is so broadly curious and has Catholic, like lower C Catholic Mm -hmm. kinds of interests that he would he could ask and he can find something to be interested about in just about anybody. But Springsteen is so much, well, I don't know much about Bruce Springsteen. So that's probably where my skepticism and like judginess came from. But there's a, a, there's like a lot more going on there in how Bruce Springsteen thinks about the world. And then in the friendship that the two of them have formed, Mm. than I was expecting to find. And the show really does seem to be kind of evenly about each of them in this conversation that they're having. It's Mm -hmm. not like, the spotlights on Barack Obama and he was like, let's just add Bruce to the room because he's nice or something. Um, It's a really interesting combination. I think I have just concluded that I like to listen to podcasts where the people are clearly interested in and curious about each other Mm -hmm. and they have good conversations. Yeah, I I think that's right. Like there's, there's many different kinds of podcasts out in the world. There's some that the, the produced audio, true crime, storytelling, edge of your seat. But then there's a big part of it that you're there for the hang. Right. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. that like any podcast, especially think this one, it's between two people that are mostly the the durable hosts Mm -hmm. and it's improvised, improvised, live to tape, unscripted, whatever you want to say. If you're not there for the hang, you're not going to stay for the the topic. There's nobody listening to this point of this episode who didn't come for the hang. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't even think it's like a grit your teeth and bear it sort of a situation. (laughs) Like you have to actually enjoy the the vibe. Mm -hmm. So like if someone brings a good vibe, that's why I'm saying Obama, like, you, his aura of you want to hang around him is so strong. It's like I don't even care what the side dish is for the entree. Like I, I'm getting lobster <laughs> thermidor. I don't even is that gravel? I don't know because the lobster is so tantalizing yeah, that it doesn't matter. And it is so nice to see him not have to be in charge. Like they they sort of start their first conversation talking about 
an evening from previous in their friendship where there there was a piano and a party and people were hanging out and Obama says something like, you know, there were libations and we were singing and he's like, let's be real, Bruce. There was drinking. (laughs) This is tough hang for Bruce who almost got a DUI, which turned out to be kind of a garbage thing, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and also they recorded this over the summer and it's like yeah. just coming out now. But do you think like, Bruce would be like, B, B, just <laughs> on, the, on the booze talk? Maybe. <laughs> anyway, yeah. if you're looking for a podcast, oh, it's on Spotify, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen. It's a good mm-hmm. hang. Good hang. Shouts to Jen. Tell me about Jen. We're going to get out of here. Our very own Jen Northington, who you've heard on this podcast, you might listen to on uh, SFF Yeah and Get Booked, has an anthology coming out. She and Swapna Krishna have edited an anthology called Sword Stone Table, Old Legends, New Voices, that brings fresh life to stories of King Arthur Camelot and the Knights of the Round Table. It is coming out from Vintage on July 13th. Um, It includes stories from best-selling authors. There's really a cross-genre sensibility to it with gender bending and race bending and LGBTQIA takes on classic stories. It's really inclusive and wonderful. We've gotten to hear about it behind the scenes as Mm -hmm. Jen's been working on it over the last year, but it's the news is out and now you can pre-order it. So we will have a link in the show notes um, to more information if that is your jam. And Jen, we're just so proud of you. Also, our friend sometimes co-host with us, Sharifa Williams. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, exec editor is on here. Mm-hmm. Jessica Plummer, who writes uh, for, for book write about comics, generally speaking. Preeti Cheever, mm-hmm. who long in the day wrote uh, about comics for us, but also friends of, the, friends of the pod in other ways. Sarah McLean, who was on Reading Lives a long time mm-hmm. ago. Alexander Chi, uh, who's been you know someone we've kind of known a little bit. Another yeah. in Roshana Choksi, Nisi Shaw. A lot of interesting. Sylvia Marino Garcia, yeah. really interesting list of writers. Really cool cover image of a woman cyborg with a sword going to attack a castle or defend it or <laughs> something. They're going to do something to that castle. Link in the show notes, bookriot.com slash listen. We would like to hear your idea. What's your, idea, what's your feedback about short form, should I read it, takes on books out there in the world that people might be wondering about in a given moment? you like it wrinkles other things like that also if you have other questions about what are birds and what are fish <laughs> rebecca and bob are happy to take We're here for you happy to take any anything that might be borderline don't text me though rebecca <laughs> <laughs> what if we're just like rebecca pelicans and you're like oh i know what this actually that's more info that i got I'd be like, I've seen one. It, it flew. <laughs> and that eats fish. <laughs> it's a bird. Rebecca, uh-huh. We will do this, whatever this is, again <laughs> And we do want to hear your dream pairings of political oh, yeah. figures Yeah, we're going to come back. Authors. That's a segment. That's a segment that's coming up. As we avoid talking about what's new, cool, <laughs> and we're talking about the books. Talk to you. Have a good week. Bye.